Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, how's it going? What's happening out there? This is The Other People Show, and I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow The Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So today is Friday, which means it is time for another flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from an episode of your today, an outtake from episode 423, my conversation with Chuck Klosterman. This episode first aired on July 20th, 2016. Chuck Klosterman is the best-selling author of eight nonfiction books, including Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, and Killing Yourself to Live. He has also published two novels, Downtown Owl and The Visible Man. 
Chuck has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, Esquire, Spin, The Guardian, The Believer, Billboard, The AV Club, and ESPN. He served as the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine for three years and appeared as himself in the LCD sound system documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits. Chuck Klosterman was an original founder of the website Grantland with Bill Simmons. An outtake from episode 423, my conversation with Chuck Klosterman is coming up momentarily. So before we get going, I just want to let you know that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack. My newsletter lives online at bradlisty.substack.com. And it's pretty simple. I let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good and you want to hear from me in your inbox, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe. Likewise, I want to let you know that there is an Other People Patreon community that you can join. You can get merchandise. It's a great way to show this program some love and help ensure that it can continue into the future. So if you like this program, if you listen regularly, if you are in the holiday spirit, you can join the Patreon community over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right, so let's get to the main event, today's flashback. An outtake from episode 423, my conversation with best-selling author Chuck Klosterman. Again, the episode first aired on July 20th, 2016. And as you will hear, (laughs) it was a very hot day when I talked to Chuck in my old garage. My old, unventilated, filthy garage. But we had a great talk, and it was a thrill to meet him and to get to hear about his life and his work. So... Let's get to today's flashback. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chuck Klosterman. It, it's, it's almost sort of like some kind of physical challenge. Yeah, we can go shirtless if you want. Can't, I've never well, done that. You know, I actually was sitting here going like, if, if I start sweating and I take my shirt off, will that become <laughs> part of the podcast? Shirt is fine. If you take your pants off, I'm probably going to get a little you know, concerned. Okay. Okay. Uh, well. Well, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. I appreciate you coming out. Uh, you're on tour. I am. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Multi-city. Yeah, I kind of did the East Coast, then I did the middle of the country, and now I'm doing the West Coast. And, you, and you're living in New York? I live in Brooklyn right now. You do? You like it? Yes, I do. Oh. Of all the places I've lived in my life, that is definitely the place I feel the least weird. Okay. Because everyone there is kind of weird. Right. What yeah. part of Brooklyn are you in? Well, I live... Um, it's a little complicated. It's, some people would say it's Burham Hill. Some people would say it's the very edge of Carroll Gardens. Okay. I just I'm not sure. I don't also I've never understood why in New York that question is so much more important than anywhere <laughs> else. It's like you, people really want you to say like the like kind of like the the 
the like the the relative nickname or whatever of the area you're from. I know. I, 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 I don't even know why I asked you. I just like it seems like the thing to ask people is. when they say they're from Brooklyn. Yeah, you, you ask what part of Brooklyn, and then unlike other places, it's totally acceptable to say like, "What's your mortgage?" <laughs> like that's the only place I've ever lived where people will ask that as a second question. Yeah. What is your mortgage check? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to know? I'll, I don't care. It's like, yeah. <laughs> So uh, the new book, the basic premise is uh, what if we're wrong? It's kind of taking a look at all of the things that we sort of accept culturally, socially, and, and turning, them, turning them on their head. Yeah, I think in some ways the subtitle actually reflects what the book is a little more accurately. There are parts of the book where I'm literally asking what if we're wrong about these things. But the subtitle is thinking about the present as if it were the past. And to me that actually is closer to what most of the book is. Yeah. Like just this attempt to sort of visualize how this period of time will seem – to people who have not yet been born and will be looking back in a hundred or three hundred or a thousand years yeah. in much the same way that we look back at the 19th century or the 16th century or, you know, the yeah, the, it, it, it's like this weird hubris or blindness that happens to people. I think probably in every time where you just take at face value, the things that you think are right or that you think are solid. Well, but in a sense, there's no way around that. Okay. It, it, you know, Every generation of people has to sort of deal with this idea that the understanding of reality we have is the most accurate vision we've ever had, that we're sort of building on the ideas of the past and that the way uh, we are experiencing art, the way we're experiencing science, the way we're experiencing politics and sports and all of these things, because we're here and we have a firsthand sort of knowledge of these things, that the way we perceive them must be the closest possible sort of definition of what they are. And yet the history of ideas is really the history of people being wrong. Right. And what will what will eventually happen is that in the same way we reinvent our own version of history, people are going to reinvent uh, this period. And it's, it's just sort of this strange paradox. The fact that we're experiencing it gives us almost the least ability to sort of understand what it means to be alive right now. When you're that in it. is decided by people who have not yet been born. Okay, but you can do you can get a little bit predictive with it. You can look around at certain, you know, practices, trends, cultural values and you can make some predictions about what you think might in in, you know, with the benefit of hindsight not live up to their billing, their current billing. I guess you can certainly always make predictions and when you write a book about the future in any way. And as this is, I guess, that's what people want, okay? Many times when I do interviews now, people will be like, make a prediction about, you know, <laughs> say something that's that we're wrong about now that we'll understand later. And I'll always go like, well, uh, you know, this isn't a book of predictions. And they'll be like, please make one. <laughs> like, just make a just prediction. Tell me and what's that becomes happen. sort of off in the center of the story because people do have this urge to sort of, to look, to want to look forward and visualize uh, the unknown future, but I, I really feel like I'm kind of doing the opposite. What I'm trying to do, and this is a somewhat impossible task, but I'm doing it because this is a book. Like I'm trying to jump forward to these people who do not exist and visualize how they will look backwards. Like right. the, it's almost the opposite of a prediction. It's how will things that are happening be reinterpreted and recontextualized since that to me seems to be the main thing that happens with uh, sort of the way time unspools. I was know? thinking about Donald Trump in that context recently. Like, yes. like, like uh, apart from your book, I was just thinking like, what are people going to think when they look back on this period in American 
political history well, that I this mean, guy has yeah. ascended as the nominee of a major party. I mean, it seems like they'll think one of two things, uh, which are completely unconnected and are really just sort of outcome-based. Like, okay, the assumption, to, I think that... that it's probably mathematically impossible for Trump to win the election. I think that there's, uh, you know, and even if he did, he would be. I'm like, knocking on wood right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> like he would be, even if, if he did, he would be the most ineffective president, so ineffective he might not even be damaging. I mean, he would have no support in Congress. He would have no, he, his approval rating would be through the floor. He'd try to build a wall that would never exist. He has no ideology. He would constantly be putting himself in a position probably to be impeached quite often. You know, if, if, if what Clinton did or whatever, people always want to impeach the president. It would be very easy to do this. But let's assume that he loses in a, landslide, in a landslide. I think then probably what happens is he and really the selection of Sarah Palin in, in, in the previous election yeah. will sort of be seen as sort of, well, this was the end of the Republican Party where sort of the demographic shifts in the country moved away from the things that they valued and he and Palin will be seen as sort of like almost like the desperate Hail Marys of the GOP. Like these were like, you know, these last attempts. But now let's say somehow Trump does win. We've been wrong about him every way along. You know, he'll never get the nomination. Then he did. All these things. He'll he'll drop out of the race in November. He never did. He doesn't even want to be president. Doesn't want to be president. You know? <laughs> right. So let's say something happens in some, you know, unforeseen scenario that he he, he wins Florida by a hair. Something happens in Ohio that turns people against Hillary, and he wins Ohio, and suddenly, in this unexpected turn of events, Trump has become the president. Well, then, I suppose, when people look back at this period, they will probably say, uh, you know, what the biggest issue in the country was at the time was identity politics and the discomfort with how that was changing the way day-to-day life was, so much so that they elected someone president whose main sort of philosophical contribution seems to be, I'm against this sort of kind of progressive language or the idea of of identity politics being a valid form of expression regardless of what the merits of the idea. Like, I think then that, you know, so, so what happens is how Trump actually does in this election dictates the memory, but not because people will say like, well, he succeeded or he failed, it will say something different about the period. Yeah, you know? and the people. Yes. It's, I mean, that's a... Because anything that gets remembered, it's never for the thing itself. It's right. always for the ancillary sort of rippling effect it has and what it then can be used as sort of a prism to understand other things. That's it. that Right there, you just verbalized uh, like a, a Klosterman, a very sophisticated Klosterman take. Like that was it. I, I feel like you have a unique ability to synthesize cultural information and to get at it at a deeper level than most people. Have you always been able to do that? Like, do you, are you a consumer of culture, you know, to a degree that exceeds the average person? Well, you know, I don't think that I am a, I don't think I exceed the amount I consume of culture. In fact, I know that I have certainly friends in the media who consume more than I do. What may have happened is this, you know, uh, like, uh, I'm from a farm, okay? Like, I came from a farm outside of a town of 500 people in North Dakota. So, like, when I grew up, we didn't have cable. What kind of farm was it? Dairy farm or? When I was very little, it was a dairy farm. Then we got into beef cattle, but it was mostly, when I was young, it was mostly crops. It was mostly wheat, barley, corn, beans. Now my brother still runs it, and it's basically just what I considered row cut crops, corn and beans, and yeah. You know. But 
the thing is, it was like unusually isolated, like significantly more isolated than the town depicted in Footloose. Okay, okay. like like was there the, was there dancing? Uh, there was dancing. You could <laughs> dance, but like you couldn't get MTV even if you lived in town. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, there the, there was I think six cable channels or seven cable channels for the people who lived in town. But I lived out of the country, so I didn't have that. Um, radio was very limited. There was a top forty station. There was an album rock station. Everything else was mostly country, and um, the only way that I had access to books was was literally in the high school library. So what would happen is, is you know, I had to think about culture through what I had, you know, and for a long period, you know, sixth, seventh grade, I had five cassettes. So I would just listen to these five cassettes, which were what? Well, it was Molly Crew Shout the Devil, and uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon. And, Lots uh, of barking and shouting. Yeah, Van Halen's 1984. Okay. Uh, Def Leppard's Pyromania, and then Kiss Animal Eyes. Okay. And I would play these cassettes. So and then also Izzy Top Eliminator. I guess I had another one in there. So I, w- I think maybe I got Kiss Animal Eyes later. But regardless, I would listen to these cassettes over and over again, and I would read the liner notes compulsively, and I would look at the covers on the cassette, and I would think about these things, and I would read things into these records that the artist could have never intended because this is all I sort of had. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, now, I think that the consequence of that is that I am uh, sort of molded me into this person who can consume very, very mainstream culture, like very straight culture, not counterculture stuff, just sort of normal stuff, but sort of work through the ideas in it the same way a normal person would work through art with that actual intention. Like, you know, if I think if I had been raised, say, in Minneapolis, I think that I would be in many ways very different as a critic because I assume that my friends would have – okay, like when I went to Spin Magazine and I became really very close friends with the people who worked there, it was just this thing that I I'd never – I couldn't believe there were all these people who were so much like me. But when we talked about our high school experiences, they tend to be the kids who were into – you know, Husker Du and the Smiths and the Cure and these kind of interesting things. They gravitated toward that. Right. I bet I would have too if I would have had the chance. But because I didn't, like Axl Rose was the most interesting cultural figure in my life. Yeah. That he was contradictory and that he seemed sort of political without having political ideas and stuff. So I thought about that. So that may be – I mean what you're asking is a very flattering question. I don't even know if it's true, but if it is, I bet it's because of that. Well, no, but it makes yeah. it makes kind of a weird sense. Like mm-hmm. I, I think at first blush, you might think to yourself, oh, somebody who's this capable of, I don't know, synthesizing, processing all these different cultural uh, forces and coming up with really interesting insights into them would be benefiting from an abundance of intake. But the in truth... It's actually the product of having been limited. Oh, it was a, that that obstruction was a huge benefit. Yeah. The other benefit was that you know I worked in, as the daily newspaper reporter for eight years, and you're kind of constantly doing that. But you go out to to do a story on someone or something, and you get back to the office, and you know in that in those days it was column inches. It wasn't words. You'd be like, we have ten column inches for this story. So you'd be like, well, I need to explain this complicated thing in an interesting way in a limited amount of space. So the key is figuring out what really matters about this. Yeah. Not just reflecting exactly what happened, but sort of trying to figure out what about this thing has merit outside of itself. So I think that helped too. I really do feel like working at newspapers 
is a very good way to learn how to write. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's a dis- yeah. it's enforced discipline, deadline, but it's also concision. Yes, and and the thing is, it's like you have all these rules. Like you know, you can't. There's language you can't use, and you got to use short paragraphs, and you got to use inverted pyramid, and all these things. But because it's coming out every day, and it's a it was a very complicated process, at least compared to internet publishing, it was much more complicated. If you stay within those rules, you do have a degree of freedom, you know, because they don't they're, they're not in a position where they can sort of rethink right. what you're doing. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So let's go let's go back. I want to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. You know, like what happened, you know, on the farm. And oh, way back then. Yeah, okay. let's, let's yeah. I mean like let's get started. Like you you said you had access to books in your high school library. That had to have been formative. But like when when did the light go on for you? When did you start to think that you were going to write? Boy, that would have been later in life because, you know, uh, I, I had a limited view of what my life would be. I assumed that I would go to college and I would major in English because I had been good at English in high school. And I would become an English teacher and either a football coach or a basketball coach at a high school. And then my hope would that eventually I would become like an offensive coordinator at a college, like a football offensive coordinator in the SEC. That was, in fact, it's bizarre. It's uh, a good a, job, by the way. Well, it is. <laughs> but, but here's what I think is very interesting. A few years ago, when my wife and I moved, you know, I was going through all my stuff, and you get those books that you fill out when you're a senior in high school. And you know, one of the things is like your dream job. And my dream job is to be an offensive coordinator at like an SEC school. But what's so weird to me is that in my dream life, I'm under somebody else. Like I'm not even the main coach in my dream. It's like I, I'm, this, I'm like I'm like I was a bizarre thing when I I didn't it didn't seem weird to me. Maybe when I wrote it, I was like, here's like a funny thing to say or a clever thing. Yeah. I just think it was really interesting that my dreams were so limited that I couldn't even imagine having the best job in my dream. Um, <laughs> You're a man but then, of you know, humility. I went to college and I was walking around the first week, and there was a little kiosk for all the various things on campus you could do and there was one for the college newspaper and i was shocked that you got paid to write for it i couldn't believe it i assumed you just did it for free because in high school you just did it for free and i was like this is this is i'm gonna do this i'm like if i need a job this is better than working you know uh and almost by chance i realized that one i kind of naturally do it and two I really liked it. So I was like, boy, if this is something that I like to do and I seem like just sort of inherently okay at, I should make this into my career. Plus, if you major in journalism, I know what the job is. You become a journalist. Like I didn't know if you majored in history, you become a historian. That didn't seem like a job or whatever, you know. So it seemed like a practical thing to do. Where where did you go to college? The University of North Dakota. Okay. Yeah. And that is in? Grand Forks, North Dakota. Grand Forks. There's two state schools, like big schools in North Dakota. There's North Dakota State, which is in Fargo, has a good football team. Yeah. And then UND, which is in Grand Forks, they have the good hockey team. All right. That's the, if anybody listening to this, if they know of those schools, those are the only reasons they would. Okay. Yeah. And were you an, you were an athlete? If you had an interest in high in, school, in high school, not in college. Good athlete. Well, you know, I was. I mean, I remember now. I went to a real small school. There yeah. were eighty kids in my high school, so I played nine man football. Okay. So I mean, I guess like I was. I was the. I was the best player on our basketball team. I was the I was all conference in basketball. I was all conference in football, but that was mostly just because our team was good. What position? Well, I played both ways. I was a, I was a receiver and a linebacker and a punter. Oh wow. Yeah. Two-way player. 
Well, everybody was. Triple threat. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I mean, if you play nine-man football and you only play one way, that means, like, you're not very good. <laughs> um, then I would run track in the spring. And uh, so th- when I think about high school, I mean, that's what my memories are. Everything seemed to be built around sports. Like, I don't, I don't remember my classes that much. I mean, it, 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 it's that was sort of my whole life. My whole life was kind of get through the day at school, then you practice, and then you go home and you listen to metal. Like, that's what I did. All right, folks, that's today's flashback. An outtake from episode 423, my conversation with best-selling author Chuck Klosterman. The episode first aired on July 20th, 2016. A reminder that the full episode is available in the feed, so if you like what you just heard, if you want to keep going, if you want to hear the full hour with Chuck, just look for episode 423. It's there. You can find Chuck on the internet at chuckclostermanauthor.com. I believe he is on Facebook and Twitter as well. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe to that for free over at bradlisty.substack.com and you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a moment and you want to do me a quick favor, help the show out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a review, that helps a lot. It helps the show in the rankings and the algorithm. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get another People t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the the t-shirt. You can't miss it. Click on the t-shirt. Finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions i narrate the audiobook so if you're interested in reading my book you can do that it's called be brief and tell them everything all right so sunday there will be a new episode i will be in conversation with author ruman alam His novel, Leave the World Behind, is available in trade paperback from Echo Press. It was a finalist for the National Book Award back in 2020, and it is now a major motion picture directed by Sam Esmail and starring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali. I had a great time talking with Ruman Alam, and that is coming up on Sunday. So stay tuned.